will vouch for him before the seat of Denethor, said Gandalf. And as for valor, that cannot be computed by stature. He has passed through more battles and perils than you have, Ingold, though you be twice his height. And he comes now from the storming of Isengard, of which we bear tidings, and great weariness is on him, or I would wake him. His name is Peregrine, a very valiant man. Man, said Ingold dubiously, and the others laughed. Man, cried Pippin, now thoroughly roused. Man, indeed not. I am a hobbit, and no more valiant than I am a man, save perhaps now and again by necessity. Do not let Gandalf deceive you. The Way Lesser Inklings podcast attempts to pay homage to the great writers, thinkers, and philosophers of the 20th century known as the Inklings, and to try to inspire a love for reading literature and finding the good, the true, and the beautiful in the written word. Welcome back to the Way Lesser Inklings podcast. My name is Josh Rice. I'm one of the co-hosts, and with me again is my brother Jake. Say hey, Jake. Hey. This is the book five recap episode, so I definitely poured my bourbon, and I almost forgot how to introduce the podcast there. Had <laughs> had to take a couple of mental notes. I may have somewhat checked out. Um, so this one, we get to relax. We're not slavishly devoted to the text. It's it's always like kind of a brain break for us, I know. Um, mm-hmm. So before we get busy, because I think the first part's usually the hardest, and then we just get to kind of have fun with it. We do have a couple of really good questions to deal with this time. Mm-hmm. Jake, I just kind of give reflections. Like, what'd you think of book five? You know, kind of, kind of like off the cuff, where is it stacking up for you? You know, memorable parts, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think, um, the first thing is I, it's, I think book five is really somber. Um, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's very melancholy Mm -hmm. and you have, um, you have the buildup of, sort of the gloominess of Minas Tirith right at the beginning. Mm. The Rohirrim valiantly uh, riding to what they presuppose is their doom. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, getting there and sort of winning the day, but in the meantime, Denethor is executing himself Mm. and attempting to do so to his son. You know they they turn the tide, and then of course there's the gloom of the 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 paths of the dead as well. And mm-hmm. while while that's not while that's kind of a, a while that's a successful voyage, like it's still a like they're walking through the paths of specters. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I do. I think it's I think it's really somber, even more than book four. Where you know, mm-hmm. book four, it's it's easy to kind of forget where we're at right now. But like Frodo's captured. And mm-hmm. everything looks like it's in disarray, and Sam was contemplating suicide. But I think, yeah. I think because of the because of the start of Book Four, it had a lot more kind of cheerful stuff. And this one just started with what was described as a decaying society, something yeah. that was great that's fallen. You've got the madness of their of their leader, and he doesn't repent like Theoden mm-hmm. does. And Theoden has a glorious um, ride and an ending, but he still mm-hmm. does die. And and right. Denethor dies, and right. he, you know, and we we're set up with these kings and pieces on the board, and and many of them die in yeah. in battle. And Denethor takes that away from himself that he could have gone out in a better way. Um, I think in the midst of that, we have you know a, a hospital chapter where mm-hmm. where everybody's sick, and you have really I think the the part that has the most cheer to it the probably the the high point or the climax of it is really Aragorn unfurling the banner mm-hmm. and coming out onto the field because he he basically reveals himself as the true king and he sweeps in and and saves the day because he's yeah. he's cut off the fleet that was going to going to pitch the battle towards Sauron. So right. yeah, it's a it, it's it's definitely somber. Um yeah. I think I think one of the things that stuck out to me the most about it was that it I think had the clearest through line of mm. what, of what Tolkien was trying to do with this chapter or with this book, um, yeah. and we we hit it over and over again with appearances yeah. are deceiving and yeah and like the right. the the sovereignty of kings really right I think we picked that up in like chapter three or four like it was pretty early yeah you it know, might have been earlier than that because we started we started looking at the the baggage mm-hmm. language with the hobbits because it, yeah. it recurred the first like 
four chapters, I think. Right. And then we started hitting on it and started realizing, man, he's he's clever because he keeps wrapping that into all kinds of other situations mm-hmm. too. Right. Yeah, and it, and it was, um, and I, I think it it really, I do think he's pushing that theme. It it was interesting because we caught it so early because I think we're we're trying to be clued into things like that. I think in you know in book like in book two, you know it's six or seven chapters in before we start to see it, mm-hmm. and because because the because the theme there we think is the untangling of fellowship, right? Mm-hmm ultimately culminating in the breaking of the fellowship um, right. is, is that you have to build the fellowship first for it, for it to break. It has to have some sin, some semblance of strength, mm-hmm. you know? And so you, you build that up for three chapters and then, or four chapters and then Gandalf falls and then, you know, and then the inner turmoil uh, and, you know, like, like the, the moves start happening you know, it takes, and it took a lot longer. Yeah. You know. I, I like what we've started with here, because it's, in our brief pregame, we talked about how, in the recap, it's easy to backload. Like, we, we remember the things that we've just done better, because it's been, mm-hmm. you know, two and a half months since we yeah. went through Minas Tirith, you know, and, and Baragond and Burgil, but... But those those characters in that civilization, I think I think chapter I think book five had a really striking first chapter for setting the tone and mm-hmm. and for really establishing the board in a way that probably probably more than any chapter since since book, book one, where essentially you just swooped into the Shire in book one. In this one, yeah. very similarly, but the tone is so different. We're we're swooped into Minas Tirith and mm-hmm. and it sets up this bleak you know, conflict with, with military being right on the enemy's doorsteps. And mm-hmm. it is it is very interesting how Tolkien, like, parallels and contrasts even within these broad themes within the books in the same story. And I don't know. I don't want to give too many spoilers because I know we'll do a lot of this at the end of book six when we're done completely. But I think that's, that, that's probably the thing that being five-sixths of the way through this, mm-hmm. the thing that has impressed me the most about this literature this time through is the structure it's it's that he has he is doing so much besides plot and and he's doing it in micro like with with little character interactions but he's also doing it like if you swing the camera out on the macro where he's he's got these broad themes that weave through lots of chapters that really have Mm -hmm. nothing to do with the ring it's it's just an amazingly textured book. I've I used to think that Silmarillion was clearly better, and I, I need to read the Silmarillion <laughs> again. I, it may be the one I read last, but you know wh- whichever one I've just read is the one I feel that way about. But man, I just it's hard to conceive of it being that much better than the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and I think I think too um, what I've seen this time through is some of our spot characters have a lot more worldview weight mm-hmm. than. Um, then I like Gonberry Gon's a great example of someone who was like, Oh, that's kind of an interesting throw in. Mm-hmm. And, and when you think about the appearances can be deceiving theme that's running through, it's like, no, this, this guy is strategically placed that, um, he's representing how cultures look different mm-hmm. and how we like how Theoden doesn't fall in the trap of prejudicing, against the pukel men right um and and some and somewhat because he's in an hour of great need and desperation but but his 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 lack of prejudice you know that that his other men would show mm-hmm. you know it rewards him yeah yeah i think you know, it, and it, to see yeah theoden's so crucial in the mm-hmm. in the early part of this book because he you know he's he, he, we're we're obviously given the idea that he's less wise and high than Denethor, right? But but what Theoden has is Theoden has repented, and he's surrounded mm-hmm. himself with courageous counselors like Aemir and mm-hmm. and with Gandalf and and for a time with Aragorn, and so he he kind of becomes the type of king in a lesser way that Aragorn's going to be one that mm-hmm. that trusts the people around him, one that trusts the yeah. his Unites lessers, the kingdoms, yeah. yeah. It's pretty. Yeah. It's a pretty amazing thing, and I, I don't think that it's a mistake that 
you know, as he goes into his last charge, Tolkien describes him as being like an ancient god. Mm-hmm. You know, because yeah. it's it's like the ultimate end of his arc that he went from being a guy that the hobbits their first impression of him was that he was really polite, right? Mm-hmm. And and what happened and and from and to the end of it, he's being described as being a god of war, essentially yeah. that goes in. So it shows his layering that he he is gentle towards his lessers and he is he is earthy and easy to love, but at the same time, he can be a fierce force for good with the sword, even as an old man. And that that's what Mm -hmm. his people are like too. It's yeah. It's just cool little bits like that where he, he puts the whole thing together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't know. I, I, I get the structural thing. Um, so we have enough time to do it in, and because I think it's usually the most important is, is getting to the questions. They're, they're very different and we've been, We've been playing around with one of them. They both come from Drew. Um, okay. and a, I think a regular in these parts. <laughs> he is. He is. He asks really good questions, too. Um, his, his first one I find really interesting. He says, Why do you think Tolkien chose to split up the narratives of books three through six? What are the positives or negatives of focusing on one group of characters for a book and then switching to another group for the next book? So you want you want to take a stab at it? Yeah, um, yeah, that's a, that is a really good question. Um, uh, I think my uh, my read on it is that he, I think that he is very specifically building a through line with the story, and I think that's why the stories are segmented out the, the way that they are. Um, is that he's he's really hammering on a theme that would that would be darn near impossible to see if they were jumping back and forth so if we were chronologically you know where Frodo is and then back to where Aragorn is back to where Gandalf is um, you lose a lot of the you you definitely I think you probably enhance some of the um, narrative structure because you kind of know where everyone is all the time Mm mm-hmm as you're going, but you really, I think you really lose thematic flow. Hmm. And, and I think, I think he prioritized thematic flow over narrative flow. Hmm. I think one last thought on yeah. that. I, I do think, I do think there's a second piece and I, and I don't know, obviously I don't know. I never asked him. Um, and I've never really seen it in a writing somewhere. Um, but, but I, I do think too, that particularly at the end at five and six, it builds a lot of tension because you know particularly for a, for a, for a first time reader and even for us like there's still tension at the black gate opens even though i know exactly what happens right <laughs> and and it's you know it's because it's because we where we left off with frodo was ambiguous um and what we see at the very end is the mouth of sauron you know, bringing out the mithril coat and bringing out um, his elf cloak and brooch, and we don't we don't know what's happened yet. And so, you know, we know that Sam is on the loose, um, and we would suspect that they haven't gathered the ring, but we don't know that. Mm-hmm. And and so for for the turn there, it it builds a lot of tension in how the Frodo arc completes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's definitely true, and I think I think it really book four, five, and six is where he does he does get the real advantage in the structure of us not knowing everything that's going on. So it does build that suspense. Um, I think the negative of it this could be controversial to say, but but I, I think the negative of it is that the plot suffers in a way um, because it's easier to forget big plot points because you're away from them for a long time. Um, mm. But having said that in, I, I think now that Lord of the Rings is probably the best work of literature written in the English language. So if I say that that's a negative, I, I do think it is, but I think that it was a risk that is completely rewarded and, and, and almost eliminates the negative because what it brings to the table in making the story a true epic. And I, I think that's what that's what Tolkien set out to do. He set out to write like a Beowulf 
for the English people, a legend. And mm-hmm. because of this structure, it really does, in a way, not in a blasphemous way, but in a way, it almost is more like the writing of the Bible in that way, because you don't, in the Bible, you don't get everything that's happening chronologically. You have mm-hmm. you have different authors that give you segments of time to where, yep. for their own purposes, they're focusing in on certain events or certain people for a time. And I think the way Tolkien does that is it subconsciously clues us into this idea that there's just this huge story that, that almost is being compiled, like backwards right by Mm -hmm. like if you think of the conceit that you know that frodo's writing it like frodo would have been able to write his parts really easily but he would have had to interview the other members of the fellowship to write their parts so this idea it's kind of this this weird mix and i and i think the other deal Mm -hmm. is is what you said that's that's just huge is that the the split up lets you have cohesive segments of chapters of books that have a driving overall theme and a driving Mm -hmm. point. And if you mixed them up, you would lose all that. And and so Mm -hmm. I think in a lot of ways you would lose a whole lot if you Mm -hmm. split them up in this story. And I think it's because of its goal, but I think frankly also it's because of his ability. It's because Mm -hmm. he was so meticulous and crafted it so carefully that the structure just works wonderfully and mm-hmm. it's hard to imagine it being any other way because of the mm-hmm. way it is. Yeah. You have anything right. to add on that? Um, no, I don't think so. I no, no. Okay. Well, <laughs> no. the next, the next, what else we got? Yeah, yeah. This question is really fun um, because it kind of takes us outside of like you know exegeting the the Lord <laughs> of the Rings. Yeah. Except that it's the approach to it. So. Uh, Drew also asked, what are your thoughts on the theory of death of the author? How much of our interpretation of a novel, film, or song should we base on the intentions of the author? This theory has been used to scandalously redefine the intention of Tolkien's work, Frodo and Sam having romantic relationships, etc. But does that differ from interpreting Tolkien's intentions to mirror Protestant tradition when he was a devout Catholic? I don't know if that was a little stab there, but... (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a little. <laughs> so explaining, like he that, was an ecumenical Catholic, though. <laughs> that's true. Um, so the theory of death of the author is is basically in our postmodern sense, where the truth is whatever your truth is. That what happens is that we interpret works based on whatever we bring into the into the bargain. It doesn't really matter what the what the author thinks. It's what we intend yeah. to use. So we don't like that. Uh, I yeah. <laughs> so go ahead, Jake. I'll I'll let you run yeah, with it. Yeah. I I pretty. Um, I've actually had this conversation before. <laughs> okay. Um, sort somewhat, and and I I'm I'm pretty adamantly op- opposed to the idea of being able to interpret the work however you want. Mm-hmm. Um, having said that, I think. I think there's two things in play, and I think scripture is also a helpful, um, a helpful, you know, resource for us to understand that. In that, the scriptures were written for a specific purpose. They contain true stories that um, convey God's sovereignty over history, His sovereignty over events, um, past and future, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 point us in that direction. However, so, so, so what we can't do is we can't twist scripture out of its specific context to just apply a meaning that we feel like. Right. Uh, I've I've heard it. I've heard it said that the text can't mean what it never meant. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's right. Um, and, and, now, and the Lord of the Rings is not living and active, <laughs> right? It, <laughs> and sharper than a two-edged sword. It's a dead word. <laughs> it's a dead word written by a human. Yeah, right. Not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Correct. So, but there are also things where, um, where it is true that certain truths have different outflows, 
that virtues look differently in different times. Mm-hmm. And so while I think Tolkien could have been writing about the virtue of courage um, w- via Mary and Pippin or the, the, um, the uh, conquering of grief via Sam as opposed to Denethor, I think his purpose is to convey a message about those virtues, but how the, how those virtues are executed in 2023 may have a a slightly different application. Mm -hmm. And so what I would, what I would say to that is that my intention in reading a text is to understand the theme that a, that an author is trying to communicate and how does that theme have application, right? Does the, does the theme have application today? And almost always they will because virtues and vices are eternal, are, you know, in in the temporal world are are going to be here. Mm-hmm. And so they're always going to have an application. And, and great stories are often battling virtues and vices hmm. because, because we, we have to grow in one and reject the other. Yeah, it's, it's a couple of things. I, you know, a good example would be that, you know, I'm a preacher. We made no secret of that on here that um, we've been, I've been preaching through Galatians. And if you really wanted to boil Galatians down to what it's about, to what Paul wrote to the Galatians, his intention was to tell them, you don't need to get circumcised to please these false teachers and if you do get circumcised to please them, then you're not pleasing God and you're in real danger. So I could preach a series of messages going through Galatians and be exactly teaching what the author's intention was with no no uh, veering off of that path whatsoever. And that would be horrible preaching in 2023 because no mm-hmm. one in the church is wondering about whether they should get circumcised or not. And so... Mm-hmm to extend the logic that Paul definitely had to extend the logic to issues that we deal with today I don't think is I don't think that that's leaving the intention of the author behind I think what that is doing is using the logic and the words and the arguments of the author to extend them into similar areas I think where we where we've probably said something that Tolkien wouldn't like but I would defend it because it's absolutely there is the whole mm-hmm. idea of we're being guided by some kind of sovereign will that is going to push all the pieces in the direction they go, no matter what we have to say about it. And really for us as reformed Protestant people, we click in and say, that's Calvinism, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? right. We, and it is, that is Calvinism. Tolkien it was not a Calvinist. And Tolkien, I don't think, ever intended to preach Calvinism in his fictional story where he was trying to make an English legend. But at the same time, this could be a hot take, but I'm just going to tell you, the reason he dabbles with it and does it is because Calvinism is true, <laughs> right? Whether whether yeah. he acknowledged it or not, there well, is a sovereign will that is sovereignly moving all the places around despite what we want to do. Yeah, and and, and I think... Right, while while he would not confessionally be that, mm-hmm. as as a student of the Bible, it's hard to ignore. Um, it's hard to ignore things like Pilate telling Jesus that he has authority over him, and Christ says, "The authority you have has been given," and mm-hmm. functionally saying your actions have been predetermined. Right, and I think I think in it maybe in Acts two or four, it, Peter explicitly says that that. Mm-hmm. That Pilate, Pilate was raised up to to crucify Jesus. Like that was yeah. that was well, ordained. Well, and same when we read we we've you know just read through Exodus and like it the the Bible is pretty explicit that Pharaoh's heart was hardened to continue mm-hmm. to show God's power in in functionally humiliating the Egyptian gods mm-hmm. and to show his power right and that his heart was hardened by God yeah. So in this case, like Tolkien has, Tolkien has said through Elrond that everyone was gathered at Rivendell by name mm-hmm. and by number, for mm-hmm. by a power that had nothing to do with the wise that were at Rivendell. Like Elrond right. didn't send out that summons; they all came 
at the right time. Likewise, Bilbo found the ring and Frodo was mm-hmm. meant to have it. Like these mm-hmm. kind of ideas. And Gandalf, you know, Gandalf basically it's it's probably it's it's one of the things I'm gonna use as one of my favorite quotes, but Gandalf goes in a few places in this book and is basically talking about we don't know how things are gonna play out, but they're gonna play out according to a plan and our job is to do the job that is right in front of us, right? And it, mm-hmm. it is a deeply biblical worldview. Um, I think that when you do things that Tolkien would have not, uh, maybe he wouldn't have confessionally, uh, like when it when it gets to things that Tolkien would have found absolutely abhorrent, like terrible, like saying that Sam and Frodo are gay for each other, like that's an example of something that would have never remotely been in Tolkien's mind and he would have been repulsed by it because he Mm -hmm. would have looked at that as, as undermining what he was trying to say about servants and masters about, Mm -hmm. you know, allegories that are so obvious between like David and Jonathan, like there's, there's all these pieces in play that that kind of interpretation just ruins the whole story. And it doesn't ruin it because well, it is true that, you know, that would be sinful and vile and all that kind of stuff. But that's not why it ruins the story. It would ruin the story because it rips away all the themes and all of the things that Tolkien is trying to do with Frodo and Sam, just as an example. Yeah, because, well, and the truth is, like, Frodo's comment in, uh, oh, at the Forbidden Pool that's made about Gollum also applies to Sam, Mm -hmm. right? Where the servant has a claim on the master, like, that applies to both of them. Right. Like Frodo does things also for the benefit of Sam mm-hmm. to protect him. Yeah. And that's where, you know, people, people want to make that interpretation because of their own, you know, reprobate passions, but also because of what we have, I, I feel really confident in backing up Jason Farley on this. I, I think hierarchy is an absolute major, like Mount Rushmore theme of Lord of the Rings. It's, Mm-hmm. It's there all over the place. It's reinforced over and over again. I mean, book five was just basically about hierarchy, right? Mm-hmm. It was about how do stewards do when a king comes in, you know, how does it all work out with, you know, with vassals and all that stuff. And then basically like the pier, the Pyre of Denethor was basically like a doctrine of lesser magistrates chapter. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you had like the whole <laughs> thing is playing with that kind of structure. And so we're, it's right and proper to, extend those consistent logical ideas that Tolkien extends into our world and to apply them. And I think that's in a way I am absolutely sure that we'll be reading, you know, the human race will be reading the Lord of the Rings in 500 years because it's Mm -hmm. an absolutely timeless piece of literature. You know, Kelsey just saw the other day that she was surprised that Pride and Prejudice was written in 1810. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, so it was closer it was it was closer in time to like the Amer- way closer to the American Revolution than it is to us, and mm-hmm. and it's timeless, like because right. because what it's about is what the human condition is and what the human condition will always be, and I think in many ways the Lord of the Rings is about the human condition and really about man with his creator and mm-hmm. all the, all that kind of stuff. So good question, right. yeah, good question. I don't think I don't think we have more on that. Death of the author. Good theory. We hate it. It's a postmodern thing that destroys. We hates it. it. Yeah, we. It it destroys everything. You know, and I think it is. Right. A, it it should be. I will say one more thing about it. I think it's important because we've, you know, as our group of guys, we've tried to, you know, we watch movies and try to figure out what they're trying to say, um, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And we're doing this on the podcast, and I do that all the time as a pastor. And it, it is really critical to respect the author. Yeah. Really, really critical. Um, the the you might as well just write your own paragraphs and make up your own stuff if you're gonna mm-hmm. just interpret it any way you want. So yeah, the author's intention is a is a guardrail, and mm-hmm. you should not go outside the guardrails. Yeah, and and you know literacy actually is like that's a part of what literacy is. Mm-hmm. Like literacy isn't just learning to read. While that's very important. Literacy is also understanding the context in which the literature was written. That's right. right. There's there's a context here in that Tolkien was writing something too. Like now he was specifically writing a mythology. We know this. Like the the 
one of the big benefits of more modern writers is that we know a lot more about the author. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that he was setting out to write a mythology, you know, for England, but we we also know that he was a product of World War One and World War Two, but particularly in the literary scene, that World War One created massive anti-war literature, mm-hmm. and and Tolkien is standing against that to say that war isn't war isn't vile by its own merit, right? Mm-hmm. And that's just a piece. So there's a lot more going on, but. But there, there's an element, too, of understanding what's what the writings were at the time. Why does this stand above all the rest? And it is, it's all the things. It's the characters. It's the prose. It's the thematic design. It's the f- fantastical creation. Mm-hmm. Um, but also for its time, it, it's doing something very different from what a lot of authors were doing at the same time, mm-hmm. which, was, which was basically vilifying war at every like in every cause Mm. and to say, look, there, look, there's, there's an evil, like there's a time to stand up against the evil. And that time is when the King calls you out to stand against the evil. That's right. (laughs) That's right. That's where the hierarchy comes in. Mm -hmm. So, okay. I'll throw one that was a little unexpected as we go in. Now, now we have, now we're just freewheeling. All right. There's no restraints on us anymore. We got, (laughs) we can do whatever we want. We've done the fan service. Um, I'll ask you this. Um, we're we're well into it now. What do you think the most irresponsible criticism against Lord of the Rings is, and and also like what do you think hmm. if you what do you think the most responsible criticism of of stuff you've seen where people you know it's not for them I don't like it mm-hmm. for this and this reason is there something that just really dumbfounds you and is there is there something that you can say like hey I can see why. Why that think, might not be for you? I think one of the, um, I think one of the crit- like a criticism that I am pretty dismissive of is like the Sauron has no power criticism, um, <laughs> or like he, you know, is that he wields no power? And I think it's, um, I think it's again, I think it's a misunderstanding of how evil works, where it's like we want to see. You know, we want to see Smog come out and battle with Gandalf mm-hmm. and have this epic throwdown mm-hmm. where, and it's just like that, that rarely ever happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the annals of time kind of suggest what happens is, you know, evil men rise up and intimidate and create fear you know, again, with other, with other men. And then, you know, it's basically not a gladiatorial clash. Like the David Goliath scene happens maybe twice ever. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's not common. And so I think it's because we, because we miss, uh, construe like what evil is doing, like what the major, player on the evil side is is up to mm. like his 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 weapon is um spreading fear spreading lies creating distrust between friends and we've talked a lot about that like that's like denethor falls to hopelessness because he doesn't trust his friends mm-hmm. because he gives into despair that was pushed on him through via fear of losing his legacy. Right. Um, so yeah. What's, what's your take on that? Um, I think, yeah, I think that's ridiculous. Um, because in a lot of ways, I think Tolkien's most like magnetic or enthralling characters are the bad guys in some way. And I think it's because he scares you by letting you fill in all the blanks like he mm-hmm. he gives you enough to get your imagination rolling and he mm-hmm. he shrouds them in mystery and i think a lot of it is kind of like that ephesians 5 idea of they do things in secret that we shouldn't even speak of and i think he takes that to heart like he he's never crass like he mm-hmm. he makes them speak a lot of times in like stilted you know like old english where it, it mm-hmm. makes them sound kingly and lordly and that just gets your curiosity going and with the orcs he almost makes them sound like a 
you know, they have that kind of backwoods English kind of Cockney thing going on. Mm -hmm. And he, so he draws hierarchies even within evil. And I think that's almost attacking his strength. I think, I think attacking the bad guys in the Lord of the Rings is almost attacking one of the better things he do. He does. So I do find that one preposterous. And my, Mm -hmm. my, mine is very similar to that. I, I think it's really preposterous to, to bag on um, on his character development, mm-hmm. because because in this in this run through, I think I think like I probably had an idea in the back of my mind that that he wrote good characters, but that he really wrote tremendous world building and landscapes. And I think I had it. I think I had, he did. He just does both tremendously. Mm-hmm. Like the characters, like I, I was telling you, not not to tread on later in the episode or whatever, but I think Gonberry Gone just kind of blew me away. In this right. reading of the book, this guy comes in and he's fleshed out and he has a history and you mm-hmm. understand what he's wanting to do. You understand where he's been and Tolkien does it in such a short thing. He did that with the mouth of Sauron. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's done it with Denethor, with the despair, with Baragond. And then we mm-hmm. have this such fleshed out version of Gimli and Legolas and Merry and Pippin. And we just see that that these characters, like they have, they grow they're growing in all of the great virtues or they're falling into despair. And I think it's a real strength. He he makes memorable magnetic characters that say mm-hmm. really memorable things. He is he's an absolute master at writing dialogue. It's mm-hmm. it, it it should sound stilted, but it never does because he never overstays his welcome with it. Yeah. So yeah. I, I do think he gets criticized a little bit on but I, I don't think it's him. So probably the fairest criticism would be like I just I just couldn't really get into it. You mm-hmm. know, like the whole Bombadil with the Wendell, like mm-hmm. and, and in my I decided that I was dumber than a bag of hammers about what three or four years ago and I started only reading classic lit. Mm-hmm. Um and man, at first it was so hard. It really mm-hmm. was I really truly was dumb. <laughs> I I was slogging through stuff, like just having a hard time. And then after I kind of got my legs under me, I started being able to not just kind of figure out the plot, but see what was going on and really think, Mm -hmm. and then have discussions like this with my wife. And I think that has prepared me to say that that's not a criticism of Tolkien. This is one of the easiest reading classic Mm -hmm. lit books there is, but it's also one of the most textured and most layered and Mm -hmm. most, Meta narrative stuff, and I think I think that's not a valid critique of Tolkien. I think that's us. We need to get good. I really do. Yeah. And 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 the one that hit me square in the face was truly Crime and Punishment. Whereas I was mm-hmm. reading it, it was like, look, I know this is an absolutely standalone, you know, amazing piece of lit. And it took me about a quarter. Yeah, I hit the murder chapter. And it was so gripping that I needed a little bit of that sizzle, I think, to get pulled into the characters. And then I think that's where I kind of got over the hump and started understanding yeah. how to read this stuff. And I would just – I encourage people to do that. I, I think we got to up the level. We need to not mm-hmm. read Harry Potter nine times. We need to start – and there's nothing wrong with Harry Potter. We need to start reading stuff that makes us mm-hmm. better, though. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I've got. I I feel that challenge, and you know we're doing um, in our house. We're we're kind of bouncing around, and like we we made a book a month list that we're you know we're both going to read, and it, it's varied. Like it's some classics, it's some like you know it's, you need a some some flavor, but it's like mm-hmm. we're gonna you know there'll be some political theory in there. <laughs> like I put, <laughs> you know, like Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes. Like that's something I'm interested in. But, nice. But yeah, I do think, I think flexing the muscles. Cause I think, I just think back to, you know, the years where I had immense amounts of time to read, you know, I was reading popcorn and mm-hmm. I enjoyed it and I have fond you know, I have a fondness for it and it, and I don't regret reading those things, but you know, but they weren't pushing, pushing me and they weren't, I think when I think about the value of reading, you know, I think supposedly like Teddy Roosevelt read a book a day, you know, and he was generally known 
in society is one of the most learned, well-read, well-educated, well-spoken men in society, mm. you know, and who's, who's a, a man who has a lot of faults, but a man who won men because I think because of his breadth, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think that's something we just have to get back. I think yeah. we really do. It, it makes us better Christians because it makes us better readers of scripture too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I did the same with a lot of popcorn and, and it does make you a better reader, but it does it very slowly and it's capped out. Mm-hmm. Like you hit a point where you can read them real fast and you can, you know, you get what you get out of it. And man, the one that hit yeah. me, like I read the Odyssey and it just hit me right between the eyes. I was like, man, what, why can't I just breeze through? And, and the Odyssey's mm-hmm. not really all that complicated, but the thing is, is that it's telling a plot, but the story's not about the plot. It's about mm-hmm. it's about piety and virtue, right? Mm-hmm. And and so, yeah. popcorn's never that way, right? Right. It's always right. about the plot, and I think yeah, that, the plot and the fight. It's always right. about the plot and the fight. Yeah, like yeah, airport and I, books. And, yeah, and I think and I think so. Not to disparage the popcorn book too much is that right? Like. Again, to use my home as an example, we eat popcorn about once a week. Like mm-hmm. on Sunday nights, we watch a movie as a family and we eat popcorn and, you know, and a meat and cheese tray and <laughs> and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. But we but we won't do that every night, you know. Mm-hmm. So when you're thinking percentages, like six out of seven needs to be something more sustaining. Right. <laughs> but But in those years, I was, you know, six out of seven the other way. Well, we're probably we're probably yeah. at close to like lightning round territory here, so okay. we can just like we can trade off kind of the usual questions and and maybe you know put the curtain down on on book five that way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you wanna you wanna go first or me? All right, um, I'll ask the first question. What? Uh, let's do. What was your favorite chapter title? That's one of my favorite ones that we do. Yeah. I'll, I'll say this right off the bat. I think of all the books, this one's been the weakest bunch of chapter titles. I would agree. Um, so I'm going to go with one that I think is just pretty obvious. And I think I like uh, obvious in why I would like it or why I would jump out. And I think it's the black gate opens. And mm-hmm. I think just the reason for that is because of, you know, the symmetry with Frodo and Sam's, quest where at the end of this book he ties it back to frodo and sam before he goes back to them and i i think that's pretty neat like that's that's a pretty good way to do it in in some ways i think it's kind of the only chapter title that i think is at all creative that way yeah i uh i agree actually then and really for the same reasons (laughs) (laughs) so all right hive mind at work there you go there you go so um who do you think who do you think won this book? Who's who is the greatest character in the book? Yes. Oh man. <laughs> the Witch King? No. <laughs> I got man, I got Man, I, the Witch King was good. <laughs> I got I've got later awards for him, I think. Okay. Um I I think it's Aragorn. Mm-hmm. Um because uh, because of his reveal, like he really comes into his own here. I, I don't think that, like Aragorn's character doesn't, doesn't change the way it, like it does in the movie, right? You know, like that's not what happens. But I think it's, I really think it's his wisdom and humility and his like, and everyone recognizing who he is, but him understanding the situation. Like I think the the real all star moment is at the houses of the healing he sneaks into the city to you know to heal them but says but basically says it's not good for the city to be in this turmoil and have the confusion over leadership at this Mm. time when the battle's still raging right and and there's a lot of just man the scenes in the house of the healing where he calls out you know faramir and eowyn and mary um the way he, uh, the way he commands the dead army, you know, I think, and then, and then, of course, the end at the Black Gate, um, just the leading of the army and the, I don't know, the, the assuming the position 
um, that he's been, you know, I think working toward his whole life and, and, mm. and knowing how to handle it. Mm. Yeah. He handles it perfectly. I'm, I'm not going to disagree with that pick. In fact, if you had gone another way, that's probably what I would have said, but I will, I will give the tie and we both get to do what we want here. Cause you know what I'm going to do. I'm going <laughs> to give the tie to Gandalf because Gandalf probably has, I mean, he has the yeah. quotes in this book. He yeah. is the mover and shaker. And, and I think that also, it is an area where in Aragorn's greatness, it's almost like they propel each other. Like in Aragorn's greatness, he depends on Gandalf to be the counselor for this time. And it shows Aragorn's surety and his confidence and also his trust, but it also shows Gandalf's wisdom in how he's studied the arts. Um, and he has those moments where, uh, man, I think it, it's, uh, let's stick with the theme, right? Of appearances can be deceiving. Aragorn's greatest moment is where he comes in in a gray cloak and heals the sick, mm-hmm. right? I think Gandalf's greatest moment is when he leaves the confrontation with the Witch King to save the steward of Gondor. Yeah, it, it's almost through seeming weakness and lack of bombast that they they're shown to be the great men that they are because of their compassion and their duty to what's right in front of them. Right. Yeah. Let Let me read this line that confirms that we're correct. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Pippin remained behind. Was there ever anyone like him, he said, except Gandalf, of course. I think they must be related. (laughs) (laughs) And then, so, and then he chides him because his tobacco pack is laying right there and Aragorn knew it the whole time. (laughs) I love that moment. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, yeah, like, for them to, you know, for Merry and Pippin to say, like, was there ever anyone like him? You know the king, uh, except Gandalf, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and they've been in the, they've been in the company of Denethor and Theoden, um, Legolas, Glorfindel, Elrond, mm-hmm. like they've been in high, high company. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it is the highness of Elrond or Galadriel with the earthiness of someone like Theoden that mm-hmm. they that they really they love their people, kind of to mm-hmm. a different different extent. It's a, yeah. it's just, it's just pure virtue on display. Yeah. All right. Your turn. Okay. Uh, all right. Who is your, who's your favorite? Um, what I like microwave. What's the, what's the, is that the right term? Yeah. The microwave yeah the, character? So, so I'm not going to use Sauron <laughs> this time. Cause I think. He's <laughs> <laughs> throwing him in as the sixth man. Yeah. <laughs> He's the captain of the other team. team. Yeah, I, I regret everything. Uh, yeah, um, I think yeah, this one. There's a lot of good options, but I think I don't consider Mary and Pippin to be microwave in this book. So, so I yeah. think the real options are Witch King, um, Malthasar on Gonberry Gone, and I'm going to go with Gonberry Gone because I'll just just yes. to, to tread on other things. It's my favorite chapter. I, I'm so surprised by that in the recap as we've done it, that I loved that chapter. I, I loved how it was, in some ways, the height of appearances can be deceiving. And I think yeah. Gonberry Gone proved that it's not about it's not about where you live. It's not about the things you have that define virtue. Virtue is all about um, deeds working out of love, right? That, yeah. that he loves his neighbor, and he works deeds, and he, um, he saves the world, with mm-hmm. with his contribution he can't he can't fight the enemy because they're on horses but he can fight the enemy by doing his part he, he also i i want to add to that too is he also shrewdly protects his people mm-hmm. with his negotiations mm-hmm. you know he, he doesn't put his people in harm's way you know he says strike me down if, right. if you're gonna strike strike me down and yeah he's a he, really in a way he's a great king you know, mm-hmm. he kind of he comes in for one chapter as a king, and I, yeah. I think it's interesting that he got foreshadowed. You know, with the pucal statues as being this, yeah. you know, being these relics of the past, like this, yeah. like almost hard as stone. And he's described that way as almost being like a yeah. tree stump, right? It's yeah. just he's weathered That's, and and stays the time. And I just I loved it. I, I, I loved too. him as a character. Yeah, That's the power too of that character arc. Like you, you also like just the statues alone give you a sense of who gone is mm-hmm. like, you kind of get a sense of his status as, um, and, you know, and, and, and that idea of like, it's interesting 
compared to Rohan and Gondor, like they're different stages of civilization where his civilization is older than Gondor mm-hmm. and has not changed very much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how about you? Um, I think it's the Witch King. <laughs> <laughs> Um, if it's not if it's not going to be gone, I think it has to be the Witch King. Yeah, and I think it is. I think it's the magnetism. Um, the I think it's one of our better pictures of like of the evil on the front lines of how it, right like how it treats its servants and and we again we see the virtue and the vice where right right before that gone is shrewdly protecting his people but also helping protect Theoden's people. You know, Theoden rides out in front um, in the charge on the Pelennor Fields. Aragorn does the same. You know, meanwhile, the Witch King's throwing wave after wave at the gate, trampling over them, you know, with Grand mm-hmm. as if they're in his path. Um, and then there's, yeah, then there's the mag- the, the magnetic speech, the... Um, you know, the confidence, the fulfillment of prophecy, him understanding the prophecy where mm-hmm. he wavers at Eowyn's re- revelation. Mm-hmm. I, he's just, he, every every sentence is just gripping that he's mm-hmm. a part of, you know. Well, and it was kind Mount- of the, it was the payoff from book four, right? Where mm-hmm. he had the confrontation, because he may have been this for you in book four, like the mm-hmm. the confrontation in the valley, Mm-hmm. Or he is yeah. just that way. He knows what's well, going on. I don't usually pick the bad guys, but man, <laughs> there's something. There is something really compelling about him. Um, and I think, I, I think the you know, I think we even talked about it. Is um, even leadership in the hands of an evil man, right? Is is a powerful weapon. Mm-hmm. The skills of leadership and the confidence of the confidence of the mission. Like, cause, cause the thing that the witch king doesn't do is waver in his mission of felty to his lord, mm-hmm. mm. and it's it's a powerful weapon. Have you got a favorite quote? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think um, I think I have two okay. uh, actually. So one, and maybe it's not a quote; it's kind of a moment. Um, is when. You know, when Aragorn wakes Faramir, calls him, you know, what we would kind of suggest is he reaches into the spirit or invisible world to call Faramir's spirit out. And he wakes, he's been in a coma for (laughs) at least a week, maybe two. I'm not 100% sure. I've not done the timeline, but he says, suddenly Faramir stirred and he opened his eyes and he looked on Aragorn who bent over him, who he hasn't met. And a light of knowledge and love was kindled in his eyes, and he spoke softly. My lord, you called me. I come. What does the king command? Mm. It's just a really powerful moment of this. Like, we've already, we love Faramir already from mm. uh, from his virtue and handling of Frodo and Sam and Gollum. The way he courageously stands against his father um, for doing for doing justly in violation of the law of the land mm-hmm. um, and interposing on their behalf. And here, and, and then also the, the man who is, you know, in line to ascension on uh, to the throne as a steward, you know, knows who the King is immediately and asks for orders. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It, 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 it kind of ripped it at the insides. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it, for sure. it stuck with me. Um, yeah. I think the other one, I think it's my favorite quote. I think it's just, I think it's the language. Um, I was going to read, uh, it's going to be, it's when, um, Theoden is, uh, offers friendship of the Mark, um, for gone, very gone, helping mm. him through. He says, uh, he says, dead men are not friends to living men. <laughs> And give them no gifts, said the wild man. But if you live after the darkness, then leave wild men alone in the woods and do not hunt them like beasts anymore. Gonberry Gon will not lead you into trap. He will go himself with father of horsemen. And if he leads you wrong, you will kill him. And it's, I think it's very similar, right? It's the king, the king of the pukelmen, I think, 
you know, standing in front of them saying, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're on your side. Don't hurt us. But if you're going to hurt us, it's going to be me and, you know, my people will disappear. Um, but also his, his just straight down the middle of truth of like, if, if we don't help you, like no gifts are going <laughs> to, you're going to die. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He knows um, what's going on. <laughs> he knows what's up. So. No, it's great character. Well, mine's unsurprising. Right, it's unsurprisingly from Gandalf. Yeah. There's lots of them, but I, I like this one because I just think it's such an important one for us to know and understand. He says, Other evils there are that may come, for Sauron himself is but a servant or emissary, yet it is not our part to master all the tides of the world, but to do what is in for us in the succor of those years wherein we are set uprooting the evil in the fields that we know so that those who live after may have clean earth to till what weather they shall have is not ours to rule. Mm -hmm. I I think that that is just in short, a recipe for courage. Like, Like I think that's really like bottled up courage is you, you need to do what's in front of you and we don't get, we don't despair and we don't get hopeless about what's going to happen 50 years from now or four years from now. we, we do the thing, and I think I think Gandalf, in a lot of ways, is if if you're listing out his characteristics, truth and courage are the two biggest ones, and I think that quote really just exemplifies his character. And it'll be a while, a little while before we see him again not not mm-hmm. too awful long, but a little while, yeah, um, because of book six. Yeah, I probably got probably got time for one more back and forth. So. Is it me or is it you? It's you. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> Um. Yeah, you know, observation too. There's not a lot of songs. You know, we no, there wasn't. Have you noticed? Um, yeah, as we move deeper into the melancholy, we lose. You know, we lose a lot of that. Mm-hmm. It's just an observation. I, had, you know, because I've I've enjoyed reading through the psalm. There was songs. some there was some poetry, right? Because of a yep. prophecy about yep. the paths of the dead, which yeah, yep. real cheerful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Um, yeah, and there was another, I think, one um, about a prophecy for Legolas um, mm-hmm. about uh, sailing to the west. Yep. Um, okay. Uh, who? So we did Microwave. We did MVP chapter title. Um, I don't know. Yeah, let's do, like, the, I think... What would be your adaptation moment? Like, what was something that either was done that you didn't like or would like to see different, or yeah, or something that wasn't done that you'd like to see adapted? Hmm. Well, okay. So I'll brag on the movies real quick before I try to take away. I think <laughs> when they did, when Theoden's charge at the Pelennor mm-hmm. Fields is yeah. just unbelievably good. Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's there's just nothing nothing I can say to to downplay that at all. So mm-hmm. I will criticize at the same point, which is the Pelennor Fields. I think that I think that having the army of the dead come and sweep away um, the enemy at Minas Tirith, I think that it was a move that was done for economy, so that they didn't have to widen the world but i think that they they it really it really kills the tension of what comes after and it kind of makes it just seem really strange and disjointed until it kind of just gets back into sam and frodo again um mm-hmm. i think i think that what happened is you get this the, the battle was built up so huge that when they win it feels like we're used to that being like the end of a movie Right, and it's not. Mm. It's kind of in the middle, and I think it is because of they're not you not getting like all of the loss, and so same hand, and then I'll stop because I could go on. I think the Battle of Pelennor Fields is where Legolas jumped the shark, so to speak, and and I think it's be it's not because of him doing crazy stuff like that's okay in tone and context, but amplifies the same problem that's going on in Pelennor Fields when he like surfs down the Oliphant's trunk and stuff. It's like mm-hmm. that in a vacuum doesn't really bother me, but what bothers me about it is it just feeds into this tone 
mm-hmm. of like that that tone should have been like, man, we barely got through this, and he's got ten times as many mm-hmm. in Mordor. So what in the world are we gonna do? But instead, it's kind of like oh, we smoked everybody. Like the, <laughs> you know, the, mm-hmm. the, only Theoden really died. You know, mm-hmm. and I think it would have been helpful to show you some of your bit characters and just show a lot more carnage. Mm-hmm. And it, it probably would have helped with the last debate and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would try to doctor up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah. I had a thought on, uh, on that somewhere. Where I, oh, well on some of it too, it's like, I think the arc, uh, the arc of Denethor too, like in the, in that movie, it hurts like, <clears throat> cause he's, he's just like, he never, ex- he never exhibits any kind of virtue or even like any kind of mastery. So mm-hmm. he's, he's kind of just a dotard from the, from the, from the onset. And it's, that's a real shame cause, cause his fall is, is significant, mm-hmm. you know? It's tragic for the city, and it has a lot yeah. of heft in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and yeah. Anyway, um, okay, uh, my turn on that one. Uh, I, I, yeah, I would agree. I think I do think adaptation wise, there are a lot of good things in this part. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think the Paths of the Dead is well done. Other, mm-hmm. other than its finale, which I right. wholeheartedly agree with you. I think that, um, I don't know. Um, I don't have a good answer for that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think, you know, I think the Witch King, I got to come back to that, is... I thought about uh, like him. I I don't like. I'd like to see him riding around, like commanding. You know the mm-hmm. the legions because I think what it does it it doesn't establish him really as the commander of the army, right? Uh, and and like that's clearly not the case, right? Um, he's in charge of all of it. They're they're all terrified of him, you know, and I think that like, I think the play, I also, I think the standoff, I'd like to see the standoff where he walks into the gate, you know, with Gandalf looking a little different, like their encounter, the the visual of the encounter that we got is like, I think is unsatisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's probably more of, establishing his character as just this uh like friend and foe alike are terrified of him but there's no doubt of who's running the show right yeah i think that's and, true and i think too and i think it loses like the bombast of the gate crashing down something that had never happened in the history of the city um of that being a you know where it's like you know they rush in but what really is happening is the conquering king is marching into the city. Mm. Like that's what's happening in the story. And, uh, you know, and he's, he's turned away, Mm. you know? And so I think that would be something I'd like to see handled better. And, and visually, I think just there's something to, I think there's something more visceral about riding around on the horse versus, you know, flying around on a wing steed. Right. Yeah, that's true. So, we are at time, but I'm going to do one more self-indulgent one because I just want Good. to know. So here's yeah. the self-indulgent one. What What's your, if you're just picking like a little moment, like what's your favorite just like little moment in this one? Something that stuck out that's kind of maybe could fall through the cracks and you don't, you just don't want to let it fall through the cracks on the mm-hmm. recap here. I think it's a, it's a whole, it's a sequence. Um, it, and it's, it's the Mary when uh, Aragorn, heals Mary and there's a sequence of him not want like asking for smoke uh but not not wanting to because um because of Theoden's fall and Aragorn encouraging him that it's still a worthwhile thing to do and to remember is good 
Um, I think I don't, it's a really, I think it's a really strong moment. Uh, and I think from a grief, like an understanding of grief to know that like, yeah, there is, there is a time for grief, but also partaking in the thing that, that, um, that will stir the memory over the long haul is a good thing. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that's probably my favorite, one of my favorite, definitely one that kind of sprung to mind. Mm. So mine would be pretty similar and it's that it's always easy to forget the hobbits. Um, Mm. and I think, so the setup is, is that basically Mary and Pippin both do valiant things in this, in this book, Mm -hmm. um, amazing things. And before they even did those, you know, Aragorn, Aragorn, when they're parting says, you know, that that's, that's one that I love. Mm. I think he's talking about Mary, but then, but then Gandalf introduces Pippin as being a valiant man when he's riding to Minas Tirith. And at the end of Mm. it, you know, Mary says something like, Oh, you've been, you've been putting up with this, you know, the way I've talked since Bree, we've been a nuisance to you. It's just what we do. And, And Aragorn says something like, I know that well, and that's why I, that's why I deal the way I do with you. And I mm-hmm. I think the little bit in in such a, a melancholy one, I think like the kind of the ray of sunshine in this book was the love between Mary and Pippin and Gandalf and Aragorn. That they really like that those those two hobbits have really risen up, but but Gandalf and Aragorn knew they were the whole time. You know, Gandalf mm-hmm. says it's it's so good that I prevailed on Elrond to bring them, right? Mm-hmm. Things would yeah. have been a disaster if I hadn't. Like there, yeah. there's just such trust in them, and I think that's a thing Tolkien pounds, and and it's something that I didn't want to let slip through the cracks. And I think it's funny that we were very similar there. <laughs> well, that is the uh, we're we're back to the hard work next week, and we're gonna. So we we end the book it's five the, recap. The final turn. <laughs> That's yeah. right. I, I hope that this one's been enjoyable. So if you took a week off too, get back into the book and we'll pick up with Frodo and Sam, or maybe just Sam, next week. So join us again and uh, get back to reading Lord of the Rings. <laughs>